Okay, everyone, we're going to get started. Um, my name is Van Holden. I'm the program director for PCCM Fellowship at the University of Maryland. I'm also an interventional pulmonologist. So this is one of my favorite topics is pleural disorders. I'll be focusing on pleural effusion today, particularly in how it relates to the ICU. So the objectives of my talk will be a classified pleural fluid analysis, describe management of transitive effusions, and then paranemonic effusions and empyema. So there's a very high volume of pleural effusions nationally across the United States, greater than 1.5 million effusions a year. And up to more than half of critically ill patients can have an infusion. And in the ICU, it's most commonly due to volume overload, infection, malignancy, or an organ failure. So we're going to focus on the two most common etiologies, volume overload and pleural infection. And it's important to note that pleural effusions in patients in the ICU have significantly higher morbidity and mortality than patients who don't have pleural effusions. So Patients with effusions in the ICU have higher short and long-term mortality. They have um, longer hospital and ICU length of stay. They have longer need for mechanical ventilation and duration of mechanical ventilation. And it's actually been shown that ICU patients who undergo pleural procedures have worse outcomes than those who don't undergo pleural procedures. And I thought is that if they need a procedure, they're sick enough to need one. And so that further adds to the morbidity and mortality associated with it. So with that, I'm going to go to my first case. Um, so this is an 80-year-old with COPD, diabetes, hypertension, end-stage renal disease, and moderate aortic stenosis. He's coming in with dyspnea, and he's hypoxic, requiring non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and a setting of bilateral pleural effusion. This is a representation of an ultrasound image. And his history includes an ultrasound-guided thoracentesis bilaterally a month ago. Um, and then a week later, he had a repeat one done on the left. Um, so do you think the ultrasound image shows a simple or complicated pleural effusion? And you're welcome to unmute or use a chat box, whatever you prefer. Simple. Simple, yep, because it's completely black, anechoic. Um, you can see this is the diaphragm here, this is the liver, and this is the lung. So how would you characterize his pleural fluid analysis based on what you see here? Is it A, a transidate, B, an exudate, C, complicated exudate, D, pseudo-exudate, or E, you don't have enough information? Someone says E, don't have enough information. Someone says need serum, protein, and LDH for cholesterol, so E. Okay, so we're going to, I'm not going to show you the right answer yet, but I will later. So why is it important to differentiate transidates from exudates? So if you've determined that it's a transidate, you don't need to investigate further. Transidates are due to heart failure, liver failure, or kidney failure. And so you treat and optimize the underlying disease. If it's an exudate, you're most likely concerned about cancer or infection. So both of those need additional workup and intervention. So it's important to know the, the criteria for exudate. 
And so when you opted for E in terms of needing serum protein and LDH, um, you're wanting that to calculate what? Lice criteria, right? So for lice criteria, if you have a serum to pearl fluid total protein ratio greater than 0.5, LDH ratio greater than 0.6, or pearl fluid LDH greater than two-thirds upper limit of normal, any one of those would make it an exudate. However, there is also a three-step rule. So the three-step rule is if you have any one of these, it's also an exudate, and you only need pearl fluid studies. So if pearl fluid total protein greater than 2.9, pearl fluid LDH greater than 0.45, the upper limit of normal, or pearl fluid cholesterol greater than 45. Most of the time, I end up using just, just a three-step rule. It's just as sensitive and specific as lice criteria without needing the serum values. And oftentimes, you may not have the serum LDH, or there's a large time frame between the serum LDH and total protein and when the pearl fluid was drawn. But any one of these three criteria for the three-step rule works just as well. And I noticed in the chat, it also depends on if patients are on diuretics. And that's important to know because you want to see whether or not it's a pseudoexidate. So a pseudoexidate is if someone's on diuretics or getting fluid removed, they're getting more volume removed than they are solute, solute fluid. So it falsely makes the solute values, like total protein or albumin, higher. So a pseudoexidate is an albumin gradient greater than 1.2, serum minus pearl, or total protein gradient greater than 3.1. And I recommend everyone to take a screenshot of this. I test my fellows on this pretty regularly when they're on the IP rotation. And it's very important because, again, it's going to point to whether any additional intervention is needed um, or do you focus on their underlying etiology. It's also good because uh, we're going to get into prognosis in a little bit. So in terms of pathophysiology, um, in terms of transidates, they could be due to high hydrostatic pressure, um, low oncotic pressure, or shift of transidative fluids in the peritoneal space, for example, like ascites leading to a hepatic hydrothorax. Um, heart failure, uh, low albumin resulting in low oncotic pressure, so all of these can result in a transudative process, whereas in an exudate, there is something wrong with the pleura. So either the lining of the pleura is inflamed from cancer or infection, you have increased capillary permeability, or the pleura itself is infiltrated by tumor, there is lymphatic obstruction, so you have more fluid and protein in the pearl space, but something's definitely wrong if, there's, if it's truly an exudate. So once you've determined the first step is whether it's a transudate or an exudate, then you can think about, well, what's the cause? What's the underlying etiology of these things? So as we mentioned, the most common causes of transudates, liver failure, heart failure, renal failure. Okay, heart, liver, lung. Less common causes could be low albumin levels, hypothyroidism, or mitral stenosis. If it's an exudate, something is wrong. Something is physically wrong with the pleura or there's inflammation infection. Most commonly, malignancy, paranormonic effusion. 
less likely uh, tuberculosis. The other thing to be aware of, because we take care of patients in various ICUs, medical, surgical, um, narrow, uh, a lot of different ICUs, other common etiologies of exudative effusions is called a sympathetic effusion. And that can be in pancreatitis, post-MI, or post-cabbage. So in someone that has one of these effusions, a sympathetic effusion means that the pleura is very inflamed and reacting to a nearby inflamed organ. So whether it's the pancreas, it could be gallbladder, um, it could be pericarditis or post-cardiac surgery. The lining of a nearby organ or the organ itself is inflamed, resulting in increased uh, capillary permeability and thus an exudative effusion. Those need to be drained. Because it's an inflamed effusion, if it's not drained, they can become septated and loculated over time and cause problems. Um, the other reason why post-cabbage effusions need to be drained are oftentimes they are bloody, particularly on the left side if they're harvesting the left internal mammary artery. And so those need to be drained before it becomes complex and septated. Other etiologies of exudative effusions are PE, rheumatoid arthritis, and BAPE, or benign asbestos effusion. So once you've determined transudate versus exudate, you want to see what the cell predominance is. So always, always get a cell count and differential. If it's lymphocyte predominant, meaning greater than 50% lymphocytes, it's most likely malignancy, actually, or a chronic long-standing pleural effusion. So if someone has chronic heart failure or aortic stenosis or chronic hepatic hydrothorax or renal failure, long-standing effusions tend to become lymphocytic over time. So you want to make sure that cytology is sent to make sure it's not underlying malignancy and it's just due to chronicity of the effusion. If you're worried about malignancy, when you send cytology, it identifies malignancy about 65% of the time with the first sample. You can send a second sample for cytology and it adds an additional 27% in diagnostic value. But after that, there's really no additional benefit. And if you have a strong suspicion for malignancy, um, after you get a PET scan, then a pearl biopsy may be needed. On the other hand, if someone has a neutrophil predominant pleural fusion, then you're worried about infections. So most likely paranomonic infections. And if you see eosinophils, which means greater than 10% uh, eosinophils, it's most likely air or blood in the pleural space. So is it a hemothorax? Is it a hydronemothorax? And there's fluid and air. Um, you can also see eosinophilic pleural fusions if it's drug-induced pleurisy. So we've seen this in oncology patients who've been on immunotherapy and they have a drug reaction. Um, you can also be worried about parasitic diseases or lymphoma. And then there's some special conditions just to be aware of. So rheumatoid arthritis-associated perfusions are associated with very low glucose levels, glucose less than 29. They can also have very low pH levels. And someone with a tuberculous perfusion, you want to send adenosine deaminase. Um, adenosine deaminase is greater than 40 units per liter is diagnostic. If you're worried about hemothorax, you want to send pleural fluid hematocrit. 
So if someone comes in, has a broken rib, and there's a pleural fusion, it could be a sympathetic pleural fusion because of the broken rib that's inflamed, or maybe there's a vessel injury and it's a hemothorax. So you can send pleural fluid hematocrit. Uh, patients that have urinary obstruction, like pyelonephritis, they can get a urinothorax, and you would send pleural fluid creatinine. And then there's something called a chylothorax in which the fluid looks very milky and peripheral triglycerides greater than 110 are diagnostic of that. Again, the goal of any, um, any time you obtain body fluid, your goal is to find out what's wrong and send it for the right test. It's much easier sending all these tests up front if you have suspicion for them than trying to add them on afterwards. So going back to our case, um, this, this patient has end-stage renal disease, moderate aortic stenosis, and he's had bilateral pleural fusions, which have both been drained. So going back to our question, how would you characterize the pleural fluid? A, transudate, B, exudate, C, complicated exudate, D, pseudo-exudate, or you don't have enough information. Based on the three-step rule. Transudate. Yep. A. So it is a lymphocyte predominant transudative effusion, likely from either renal disease or the moderate aortic stenosis. And it's important to know that um, even though it's a transitive effusion, most of the time you think about, oh, it's benign, but it's not actually that benign. So if you have bilateral transudative effusions, it's about a 50% one-year mortality. So patients have a very poor prognosis. And it's because they have these effusions due to organ dysfunction, so either heart, lung, liver. And if they have poor underlying organ dysfunction, they have a 50% one-year mortality. So it's also important to consider getting uh, palliative care involved. So the management of this quote benign or pleural effusion is you're going to treat the underlying etiology. So getting a repeat echo, seeing if the stenosis got worse, if they need an intervention on the valve, uh, can their dialysis get optimized? The underlying cause, you could do a repeat thora if they're symptomatic. If they're refractory, you could consider doing an indwelling pleural catheter or pleural in the acute setting, so this patient was a non-invasive, positive pressure ventilation, you could do a thora to temporize things to see if she gets better. Um, or you can also put in a pigtail until the underlying etiology is maximally treated. And once that's done and she still has an infusion, then consider an indwelling pearl catheter. So indwelling pearl catheters can be used and refractory effusions due to heart failure um, or renal failure. And this is actually pretty safe. There's a very low rate of skin infections and empyema that's considered acceptable, which is usually less than 5%. So indwelling pearl catheters are an option. However, you would not want to do it in a hepatic hydrothorax. So in someone who's in the IC may potentially be evaluate for liver transplant. Sometimes we get asked about how do you manage a hepatic hydrothorax while they're undergoing liver transplant evaluation. 
And typically, you don't want to leave uh, tubes and especially in the pearl space. So a tunneled line, like a tunneled pearl catheter, is supposed to have less infection risk than a pigtail. But even with a tunneled catheter, the pearl fluid infection rate was 17% in this one study. And it's very um, morbid and associated with high mortality in this patient population. Um, and another study that had 10% risk of pearl stage infection, um, again, some related, some catheter-related sepsis leading to death occurred, as well as cellulitis and paranemonic effusion and pyema. So specifically for patients with a hepatic hydrothorax, um, that is an indication for liver transplant evaluation because it's in organ failure of the liver. You want to treat them with sodium restriction, diuretics, if they have good response, they continue their diuretics. If they don't respond, then do periodic thoracentesis for symptom management. Um, if they don't respond to that, you can consider TIPS. However, there's a higher risk of hepatic encephalopathy, um, but it does work. If they don't respond despite TIPS, then more frequent thoras or pleuridesis. But again, ideally, the ultimate treatment is liver transplant. If they are not a candidate for liver transplant and they are considered um, palliative or heading towards end of life, then a tunneled catheter could be considered for palliation. Again, with the understanding that it has a very high infection risk. So case two, we have a 74-year-old with a history of kidney transplant on immunosuppression. Diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coming in a fever, productive cough, and left-sided chest pain for two weeks. He's febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive, and this is what his chest x-ray looks like and his CT scan showing loculations of the left pearl space. He gets a drain, and how would you characterize the pearl fluid in this patient? So we're going to go over this as well. So this patient has a paranemonic effusion, and this is what we'd most likely see with effusions in the ICU after volume overload. And the severity of paranormonic effusions depends on um, the timing of the presentation. Do they come immediately after they start having symptoms of pneumonia, or did they wait to see if they would get better and wait a day or even a few weeks before coming in? Um, patients will often have pleuritic chest pain. So anytime someone has chest pain, that means the pleura is very inflamed. It's most likely related to paranormal effusion and could be complicated. Um, how long have they had a fever? And there's other predictors of paranormal effusions as well. Based on imaging studies, you can initially categorize them as small, moderate, or large. Uh, finally, you want to look with ultrasound to see if they have any complex features like septations and inoculations. Patients don't need a CT chest with contrast. If they happen to get one for another reason, for example, to look for a PE, you might see pearl enhancement or split pearl signs. So we discussed a little bit about this, but what pearl fluid test would you always want to order? And I know you should probably never say always, but I mean, this is always. What would you always want to order? A pH. pH, yep. What else? Culture, glucose, 
ASD. Good. And we're going to go over this because it's so important to send the studies up front. So these tests always, always should be sent. Okay, so cell count and differential, again, because you can differentiate where the etiology is of the fusion. pH, glucose, LDH, that can tell you whether it's simple or complicated, exudase. The total protein, albumin, so you can see whether it's a pseudoexidase cholesterol, gram state and culture, and cytology. So actually based on British Thoracic, British Thoracic Society guidelines, uh, cytology is actually always recommended. And the reason for that is because um, about 5% of transitive effusions are actually malignant. And also what you think is a paranormonic pneumonia could be cancer. So that lung consolidation could be a malignancy. Um, so sitting cytology is very helpful. Um, they can also stain the uh, cytology fluid for organisms as well. In terms of things that you could consider sending would be if they're immunocompromised, like this patient who has a kidney transplant, you want to send for AFB staining culture and fungal staining culture. Um, and the reason for this is we've had cases of reactivation TB um, and in lung cancer patients who've been on chemotherapy, and they presented as tuberculous effusion. Uh, so these patients who are immunocompromised are at higher risk um, of these unusual pro infections. When you're worried about pro infection, it's best to send the fluid down to the lab in blood culture bottles because you're more likely to get diagnostic cancer. Um, so. Chlorofluid cultures are actually negative like 40% of the time, so it's very hard to identify and do susceptibility testing on the organism. But setting it in blood culture bottles helps identify the answer. So to determine how to treat paranormonic effusions, we're going to go over the different stages. So there's stage one, two, three, and four, and this is based on CHESS guidelines in 2000. And there's a question, is ADA recommended in addition to AFB stain culture? So ADA would be recommended if you have a high suspicion that it's a tuberculous pleural fusion. Uh, for example, patients who have risk factors for it, um, who have signs and symptoms concerning for it, then I would also obtain it. Because it also takes um, about a few days for the ADA result to come back. Um, so the stages of complicated paranormonic effusions and empyema. So stage one, meaning very low risk for morbidity and mortality. Um, so stage one is an uncomplicated effusion. It's very small, less than a centimeter, free-flowing. You don't need to drain those. So those are very small, considered trace pro-effusions. They're too small to drain. The next step is now it starts to get small to moderate. It's greater than a centimeter, up to half of the hemothorax. Um, the pH and glucose are normal. You could drain that simply with a thoracentesis. So if it's small to moderate, drain completely with a thora. Now, if it's complicated, meaning it's large, greater than half of the chest, it's loculated, the pleural looks thickened, um, or they have any of these bad pleural fluid analysis studies, you need a chest tube. The chest tube needs to be in that you completely drain the effusion. And then what makes the pro effusion complicated is, and this is important to know, 
pH less than 7.2, glucose less than 60, or LDH greater than 1,000. So low pH, low glucose, high LDH, because any of those markers would also indicate the need for intrapleural fibrinolytics. And then lastly, stage four, a high risk of empyema, meaning they have frank pus. Uh, now, as you know, these guidelines are very old. They're from 2000. It's been more than 20 years since these initial guidelines have come out. We needed updated guidelines, even British Arrest Society guidelines from 2010. Um, updates are currently in place for that. And what this does not include is our ultrasound characteristics. Um, and what you don't want to do is do something called a diagnostic aspiration, and you stick a small needle into the pearl space just to get enough sample, send it to the lab, and see, okay, my pH is uh, 7.1, so now I'm going to do a chest tube. Or pH is 7.4, so now I'm just going to do a thora and drain the fluid completely. The risk associated with the procedure is every time you enter into the pearl space. So you'll want to definitively upfront decide on doing a thora and drain completely, or do a chest tube and leave it in. But never do a, quote, diagnostic sample to obtain 20 or 30 cc's of fluid to send to the lab. Drain completely. Um, if you start with a thora and you realize that, oh, you're actually aspirating pus, you can always convert the thora synthesis to a pigtail. And the way that you would do that is you would advance a guide wire through your thoracentesis catheter into the pearl space and then use that to convert to a chest tube for pigtail. So based on ultrasound features, um, and you can see similar to our first patient who had a completely anechoic pleural fusion, um, anechoic effusions can be either transitative or exudative. But anytime you have complexity to the effusion like this, there's increased density to the effusion, there's septations, or it's completely echogenic, these are most likely to be exiting. Um, and in this study, there are almost always exiting. And so you can use this to help determine whether you would start with a thora or do a pigtail. In addition to stages of paradigmatic effusion and empyema, and just to reinforce what we discussed, so stage one is an uncomplicated exudative effusion. Patients typically present within a few days, so these are simple exudative effusions. They have normal pH and glucose, they have no positive gram stain on culture, and they're moderate, small to moderate in size and free flowing. If they present days to weeks, then the fluid starts to become thick, inflamed. They have high serum WBC. They can have high pearl fluid LDH, low pH, low glucose. The pearl fluid gram stain and culture could be positive. Um, these could be the large free-flowing or loculated effusions with pearl thickening. And then finally, the late stage is an organized phase where you have a thick, fibrous peel. And in this image, there's a pigtail in place that is completely black because it's a, a trapped lung with a thick rind. And so determining which stage the patient is in will help determine your management. In all of these stages, antibiotics is definitely needed. So it's 
early, stage one. You can drain them if they're symptomatic. If they're complicated, meaning high LDH, low pH, low glucose, you need a chest tube. Um, and fibronolytics, most of the time. If they have a thick pleural rind, that's when you would consider surgery. Because surgeons could do decortication where they peel off the rind to help the lung expand. It's important to have a multidisciplinary approach to these patients. Um, our thoracic surgeons uh, like to have a pigtail in place with some intraperal fibrinolytics up front to help clean the space out, even if it's a trapped lung, um, in order to prepare them for surgery. So this also helps you determine whether you need to do a thoracentesis or a chest tube. In terms of antibiotics for all of these patients, think about whether it's community-acquired um, paradigmatic effusion or empyema, or is it hospital-acquired? So anything that's community-acquired is most likely strep. So it's going to be similar to your organisms that cause pneumonia, plus anaerobes. Maybe they're at risk of aspiration. So community-acquired must cover strep. If it's hospital-acquired, meaning maybe it has some sort of surgical procedure intervention, and it's most likely staph. So I make sure you cover strep and staph. And then how do patients typically get these infected pearl spaces? So number one is most likely, again, from a pneumonia, so paranomonic infection. They can also get infected pearl spaces from hematogenous spread or direct inoculation with recent trauma or surgery. It can have trans uh, location from subdiaphragmatic organisms. Uh, they can have mediastinitis that's then spread into the pearl space or reactivation of infections such as tuberculosis. Think about when you're in a SICU, there's a lot of other things that can cause um, infected pleural effusions, such as esophageal rupture. You have subdiaphragmatic abscesses, splenic abscesses, um, so purulent pericarditis. So any infection of a nearby organ can cause sympathetic effusions, which are inflamed infusions. Um, but they can also progress to infected infusion. So the treatment of empyema, you want to make sure you cover antibiotics, completely drain the pearl space with a chest tube or bag, um, give them fibrinolytics. So if you look at guidelines, because they're outdated, they actually did not include fibrinolytics. Um, but the fibrinolytics were first studied back in 2011 with the MIST uh, protocol. With empyema, because it is frank pus or frank infection, you want to make sure it's completely clear. That means obtaining a repeat CT chest before removing a chest tube. You also want to make sure that the output of a chest tube is less than 50 cc's within a day. So based on these studies, their cutoff was less than 50 cc's in a day. So those are common questions we get asked is when can the tube come out? You need to repeat a CT scan, and they need to have low chest tube output. And there's also been a recent statement on the use of fibrinolytics and DNAs in patients with pleural empyema. You can give uh, the recommended dose, which is 10 or 5 milligrams, together with one hour dwell time twice a day. Um, they suggest that the number of doses be individualized based on the patient. 
So in the original study, the patients got doses twice a day for three days, so a total of six doses. Most of the time, patients only need two to three doses. So the need for additional doses depends on their clinical status and imaging studies. If there's any residual effusion, um, they still have a white count, they're still febrile or tachycardic, keep giving them doses until the pearl space is clear. Uh, one of the questions is, would you consider large chest tubes greater than 14 French? Um, so I would say no. There is also another study comparing different sized chest tubes for the management of empyema, and a 14 French chest tube, actually 12 to 14 French chest tube works just as well as larger size chest tubes, and it's more comfortable for the patient. So the only thing that the large chest tubes have shown uh, based on studies is that actually the patients had higher pain scores, and those chest tubes were actually in for a longer period of time, and it prolongs their hospitalization. So pigtails um, or smaller tubes are actually easier to manage and they're more comfortable for the patient. Um, the maximum number of PTA during these treatments, uh, so based on the MIS study, it was six studies. And if they are not improved after that, it would be a discussion with thoracic surgery to see if at that point they would want to do a VAX and clean out the pleural space. Um, if the patient is higher risk for surgery, meaning they're not good surgical candidates, you can keep giving additional doses. It's not studied, um, but it's weighing the risk benefits of um, less invasive therapy. Have we given more than six doses? Yes, uh, but rarely. Um, any comment on thorough irrigation for patients who aren't candidates for TPA DNA for that? Yes, so in patients who are not candidates, for TPA or VATS, there's another study showing a pearl irrigation with normal saline. So I believe it was 100 milliliters of normal saline three times a day. And the thought um, of that is if you have normal saline, you're diluting out the empyema and makes it easier to drain. Um, so you're kind of washing out the pearl space using the tube that's in place. Um, so, you, so you can also consider doing that. Patients who are not candidates for TTA and DNAs would be, I would say, if they're severely thrombocytopenic, um, they're on anticoagulation or they have coagulopathy that can't be reversed or stopped. Um, the main concern with TPA, intrapural TPA, is there's a 5% risk of pleural bleeding. Um, that 5% pleural bleeding can be mild, like where the fluid turns red, but it's still free-flowing. Um, but it can be as severe as needing blood transfusion or surgical intervention. Um, so the main concern with TPA is looking at their platelet count, INR levels, um, are there any other risk factors for bleeding? Um, the initial approach for fibrinolytic therapy is if they're in stage two in pyema, but once they have the organized pleural rhymes, then that's what's recommended. Um, and someone with a paranormonic effusion or empyema can calculate their rapid score. So patients with this sort of infection is actually associated with pretty poor mortality. Um, so if they have a low rapid score, they might have a good three-month prognosis. If they have a medium score of three to four, 
then their three-month mortality is 9 and 12 percent. Um, if their score is 5 to 7, they have a really high three-month mortality. This needs to be prospectively validated to see what do you do um, with this information. Like what do you do knowing the prognosis? For example, if someone is at high risk, would you want to be more aggressive and offer surgery um, to give them the best chance or not? Because we really don't know yet whether surgery is superior to intrapleural fibrinolytic therapy. So how would you characterize the pleural fluid? So this patient has a complicated exudate um, because the glucose is very low, it's less than 60, and the LDH is very high, it's less than or greater than 1,000. So for a complicated exudate, how would you manage the effusion? I think the answers already showed up, but chest tube. So this is a loculated effusion. You may not know what the pearl fluid studies will show, but based on loculations or presence of septations or echogenicity, you want to place a chest tube first. Okay, so I'm just going to spend the last uh, time discussing plural procedures, uh, which we would do often in the ICU, but it's, often, it's important to know what the potential complications of them can be and how do you minimize the risk of those complications. Um, so any plural procedure associated complication includes pneumothorax, bleeding, and re-expansion pulmonary edema. So the risk of pneumothorax um, is higher the more number of passes you go through the skin. So similar to um, intubation. If you have a learner, you can try once, maybe twice, then the more senior person will go for the third time. Um, because the more number of passes through the skin increases the risk of uh, lung injury as well as bleeding complications. Re-expansion pulmonary edema um, so it used to be thought that you should only remove a certain amount of fluid, whether it's 1.5 liters or 2 liters, because you could develop re-expansion pulmonary edema. This has actually been um, de debunked, I would say. So re-expansion pulmonary edema develops more due to the negative pressure as you're draining the fluid. So if you're if you're hand pumping the fluid doing a thoracentesis, you can generate very high interpleural, uh, very highly negative interpleural pressures, and that is what causes re-expansion pulmonary edema. Um, for, for all of you, for all of you, since you're um, ICU fellows, you're probably very comfortable using ultrasound. Um, ultrasound is a must for any pleural procedure. Um, it's been demonstrated to have higher success of aspirating pearl fluid. So oftentimes we will use ultrasound to mark the spot. We'll go in with a needle. If we don't get fluid, then we would put an ultrasound probe cover on and check in real time. Um, ultrasound can also be used to characterize the pearl fusion. You can estimate how much fluid is there, look for septations, and there's less complications with using ultrasound. And one of the main complications um, that we're most worried about that's associated with morbidity mortality is injury to the vessels. Okay, so intercostal arteries. Um, the more lateral you are, the less 
variability there is in the intercostal artery. So if you're three centimeters lateral to the spine, um, the intercostal artery was, was shielded by the rib only about 17% of the time. But the more lateral you are, the more the intercostal artery is tucked underneath the rib and, shield, and shielded. So go as lateral as you can. And someone that has had imaging studies with contrast, I like looking at their coronal images, and sometimes they can actually identify the intercostal arteries in their path before doing a procedure. It's also important to know that there could be collateral arteries. So the collateral arteries uh, branch off of the intercostal arteries, um, about four to five centimeters lateral from the spine. And so these vessels could also be injured. So again, you want to go lateral. And something that could be helpful is to use ultrasound to try to identify the intercostal arteries. So you can use a linear probe, turn your Doppler on, and you can see in this image that the intercostal vessels are right underneath the rib, whereas in this image, the intercostal vessel is right in the middle of that rib space. Um, so using ultrasound to try to identify them is helpful, especially in high-risk patients. So high-risk patients meaning that they have very small rib spaces, uh, they could be obese, um, maybe they're on dual platelet therapy, so you want to be particularly cautious in that patient population. And in the real world, um, they actually studied this in physicians using the curvilinear probe parallel to the ribs with no training. Um, these were respiratory physicians and trainees. They weren't taught in how to do this. They were just taught to use the probe and try to identify the muscles. And when they did that, they were able to identify them in about half of cases. And when they did find them, they changed where they would enter in 30% of the cases. Um, so again, I highly encourage uh, you to start trying this and seeing if you can identify the intercostal vessels and if that um, changes your management and where you would go for the fluid. Uh, using ultrasound is also helpful to estimate how much fluid is there. So in patients that have a very small amount of fluid, uh, usually less than 500 cc's of fluid, they typically don't have symptomatic relief. So if it's a very small, simple appearing effusion, they may not necessarily need to be drained. So to estimate how much fluid is there, you're going to measure the distance between the parietal and visceral pleura at end inspiration, so this distance from the diaphragm to the lung, and take it times 20. Um, when you take it times 20, that, that gives you the approximate volume. This is also helpful because, for example, if you estimate maybe there's 800 cc's of fluid there, you know when you're, when you're going to be expecting to terminate drainage, when you think you might be done, and when there's no more fluid left. But if you drain a lot more than that, and the fluid is now getting bloodier, you'll be worried about uh, vessel injury and a hemothorax. Uh, there are guidelines on managing blood thinners and antiplatelet medications for pleural procedures. Um, so pleural procedures are actually considered high-risk, uh, high-risk bleeding procedure. So thoras are pleural procedures greater than two. Um, ideally, those should be reversed, uh, especially in the non-emergent setting. Uh, platelet goals is greater than 50,000. 
that is an elective procedure holding put a grill. Aspirin does not need to be held, and therapeutic anticoagulation should be held. There are very small studies looking at pleural procedures on patients on dual antiplatelet therapy, um, and they're very small studies. And so it's still recommended that unless it's urgent or emergent, you should hold clopidogrel for five to seven days before the procedure and hold anticoagulation, again, in a non-emergent setting. So just to summarize, um, we went over pearl fluid analysis. So make sure you send all the appropriate tests up front. Determine whether it's an exudate or transudate. Look at the cell count and differential. Determine the etiology of the effusion. If it's a transitive effusion, then it's either heart, liver, or kidney failure. Treat the underlying etiology. They also have 50% one-year mortality. Drain the effusion if they're symptomatic. If it's a paradigmatic pleural effusion or empyema, use your ultrasound. Look for any complex features. Then determine whether you need a thora or a chest tube. Then need antibiotics. Uh, based on pleural fluid analysis or any complex features, they may need intrapleurofibrinolytics. Uh, make sure that uh, these effusions are drained completely before removing the tube, um, less than 50 cc. If it's a thickened pleural rind or trapped lung, then that thoracic surgery would be needed. That's it. And I'm happy to take any questions.